Welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast, the official podcast of Unstoppable Domains. Join us each week to hear from leading experts in the exciting new fields of blockchain, cryptocurrency, and the decentralized web, where we talk about the future of the internet and what that means for humans like us. Not only will this podcast help you sound super smart around your friends, but you'll also learn how you can become a pioneer in the space and help lead the charge towards a more decentralized web. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. I'm Diana Chen, your host, and I'm here today with my co-host, Matthew Gold, co-founder and CEO of Unstoppable Domains. Hey, Matt, how's it going? Uh, I'm doing just fine, although it's a little cold out. It is. Yeah, it's uh, I feel like you've got nothing to complain about in Reno, considering what we're going through in Chicago right now. But the whole country is experiencing it. Uh, Thoughts go out, especially to our friends in Texas. That is not fun stuff down there. Uh, But anyway, today we're starting a new series. We're going to be talking all about scaling and L2s. What this means in plain English is basically how do we build better on the blockchain. And uh, today we're going to start off by talking about some of the common problems that we're facing with building and scaling on Ethereum and other public blockchains. Um, And I think before we dive into that, though, let's just for people who aren't familiar with what Ethereum actually is beyond just being a cryptocurrency that you can trade, let's just give people a good, solid background into what Ethereum is and what the public blockchain is before we dive into talking about some of the problems that we're facing. Uh, So maybe first question for you, Matt, is what is Ethereum and what is a public blockchain? Yeah. So uh, let's go even further back because we've had issues with uh, blockchains being scalable since the very beginning. So when Bitcoin first launched, it's a, a very simple blockchain for tracking transactions from one user to another user anywhere on the planet in a decentralized manner. You don't need a bank in the middle in order to track sending Bitcoin from one person to another person. And since the very beginning of time for blockchains, there's always been this problem with being able to get enough transactions on the decentralized network. And it's a basic computer networking problem where you only have so much bandwidth and you only have so much storage uh, that you can use for everyone to be able to check the records to make sure that they're accurate. Everyone in the blockchain space has been working really hard to improve these numbers over the past uh, decade. They have gotten uh, quite considerably better. So the parallel that I like to use for people is when the internet first launched, everyone was on a dial-up modem and that modem was quite slow. It was like 14 kilobytes per second. And then, you know, it went to 28 and then you can get a 56-bit modem. And now today, you know, we don't talk about kilobytes anymore. We talk in terms of gigabytes for bandwidth. And, you know, I have 100 gigabytes home connection here, uh, which is quite fast and quite pleasant. Uh, And so, but that took... 25 years to go from our dial-up internet to our very fast broadband. So blockchain uh, systems like Bitcoin or any decentralized system has problems as well with speed, which affects how many transactions can go through at a time or how many people can be using the network at the same time. Um, Analogous to the same problems we had with the internet when it was very early. Uh, One thing that's significantly better, though, is that the problems with blockchain are not about having to lay fiber down or anything like that. We don't need to build new communication networks. We don't have to, someone doesn't have to come out and dig a ditch and, and run a line to your yard. You already have the internet to your house. And really it's just about 
coordinating information between all of these different participants on this network. So I'll I'll pause for a second there, see if, see if any of that made sense. Yeah, I, I think it always helps to draw a parallel to how, how internet was you know, developed and grew back in the day because that's what everybody's familiar with today. So I think that's that's a good overview. And so when we're talking about Ethereum, for example, how, how do we let's just clear this up for everybody listening who's, you know, maybe not familiar and thinks that Bitcoin and Ethereum, they're all the same thing. Talk about why Ethereum is different and uh, why, you know, everybody's talking about gas prices on Ethereum and things like that, that you wouldn't deal with on uh, with Bitcoin necessarily. Mm, interesting. Yes. So I'm going to go to Bitcoin one more time and then I promise I'll get to a smart contract blockchain, blockchains like Ethereum that you want to get to. So just back in 2009, when Bitcoin was launching, everyone at the very beginning was like, oh, there's only so much room to fit uh, transactions on the Bitcoin blockchain, and it's eventually going to be a problem. And eventually what happened was is the Bitcoin uh, protocol got full and they actually did have problems with processing more transactions. And there were a lot of people working on ways to increase the throughput of of Bitcoin at that time. And then a couple of projects launched uh, that actually just made copies of the Bitcoin code and then people could do transactions over there. So Litecoin is another famous cryptocurrency. It's the silver to Bitcoin's gold uh, was launched. And then you could see traders. And because the Bitcoin network was congested, just like dial-up modems, it was too slow to download a website in the 90s. People would switch over and use the Litecoin network because it was faster to transfer cryptocurrencies. But then, you know, it wasn't really a solution to the problem because then the Litecoin network and the Bitcoin network were two different networks. So you couldn't communicate uh, between those as well. And the new blockchain could also just fill up. Uh, so they actually tried several different ways were have been suggested for scaling. They all have a bunch of different trade-offs for these blockchains. And there's still an open question on the absolute best way to scale specifically for Bitcoin itself. And they they may even argue it's not really that important for them to scale on the Bitcoin main layer, uh, which is known as layer one, uh, because there are protocols on the Bitcoin secondary layer for scaling. So that's a little bit about Bitcoin. And then I'm gonna pause for a second. I'm gonna go chat about Ethereum since you asked me about it. So Ethereum is a smart contract blockchain and it introduced the concept of gas, which was a new thing that is was made because Ethereum runs programs. And you have a problem with having a program that runs on the blockchain because what happens if that program has a loop? And in computer science, if you have a program that has a loop, it's like, hey, keep doing this thing, you know, a thousand times, 10,000 times, 100,000 times. You can actually have a program where someone says, do this thing infinite number of times. And it's the halting problem. And there would be no way to stop that computer program from running on a smart contract blockchain. So this is actually not a problem that Bitcoin has. It's just a problem that smart contract blockchains have. So smart contract blockchains have this problem where they say, hey, we wanna make a more generalized blockchain. And we talked about this on a previous episode, but we wanna make a more generalized blockchain so that people can have much more expressiveness in all the things they wanna do. And they introduced a new problem for themselves when they did that, uh, which was how what happens if we have a program that runs a loop? So they introduced this concept of gas, which basically means you can keep running your computer program as long as you have gas. And then when you're out of your gas, then the computer program will stop running no matter what. Just like your car, if you run out of gas, 
you're done. And so that was a way for them to say, we don't care what computer program you write. You know, we'll run all the operations, but as soon as you run out of gas, you're done. And that prevented this problem with someone putting an infinite loop into the smart contract blockchain. So we have like two different types of blockchains here. We have the Bitcoin blockchain, which uh, has a UTXO output is like the way that people put it. Uh, And they don't really have a, a rich smart contract language. Uh, but they're very good at their job of tracking bitcoins in this instance, or just you know the currency native to that blockchain. And then we have these smart contract blockchains, which allow you to do a lot more things. Uh, and they introduced a, a gas fee as part of their as part of their design. So when you when you send Bitcoin from one person to another, you have a transaction fee, and you can raise or lower that transaction fee. But the amount of computation for that network is the same because you are uh, you are just putting that uh, transaction through. Whereas on Ethereum, when you submit a transaction, you could actually be making a call to a program that could run something that's quite complex. And, and that's why they have this gas thing. So there's a little bit difference on how the two types of blockchains, smart contract blockchains and uh, Bitcoin-like blockchains, uh, manage the usage of their blockchain space. Okay, so if I were to reduce this to super simple, basic English terms, would it be fair to say that with smart contract blockchains, you can build more complex apps and programs? And then would it be fair to say that the whole deal with gas prices is basically to prevent traffic jams from happening when too many people are trying to run infinite loops and uh, there's just not enough capacity? I think that's an okay way of putting it. Yeah, I would say smart contract blockchains introduced this concept of gas because they wanted to be able to run uh, computer programs and they needed to have some way to prevent people from taking advantage of the system. Got it. Okay, so a couple of other terms that you hit on when you were talking about Bitcoin, the Bitcoin blockchain was L1 and L2. So now let's move into more of the problems that we're facing with building and scaling on the blockchain. Talk more about what is what do you mean by L1 layer one? And then what do you mean by layer two? Okay, yeah, this is good. And again, I'm going to start with Bitcoin because it is the older one and it's also easier to understand. So you have the Bitcoin blockchain. And you can send Bitcoin around to each other on that blockchain. And the problem is, what happens if too many people start using Bitcoin? And then you say to yourself, wow, you know, there's not enough room for everyone to fit their transactions in. So the wait times get really long on Bitcoin to process the transactions. And then the fee for sending a transaction, which is what you can pay to get your transaction prioritized on the Bitcoin network, is going to go up a lot if you want your transaction to be sent very quickly, as opposed to one that uh, if you're okay with waiting for two, three or four days, um, and it's just a it's just a problem in economics. There's only so much supply for transactions to fit onto the network at any given time, and if the demand is higher than that supply, then uh, it's going to cause a lot of backlog because there's just no there's no way to make it larger. It's a hard limit on how much uh, transactions can go through on Bitcoin in every ten limits in every ten minutes. So people are like, what can we do about solving this problem? And the easiest one is to just raise uh, how much information you can store on the Bitcoin blockchain. And uh, this was called the block size limit debate, which happened way back when in 2013. Problem is, if you raise the block size limit, if even more people come on, uh, so, so you raise the limit. Now you can say, okay, twice as many people can put out transactions, you know, every hour or whatever. And 
if, what, what happens is when it fills up again, you're just going to have to rate, keep raising the limit again. And, and then every time you raise the number of transactions that you allow to go through on the network uh, at, you know, at a given time, the amount of computing power that you need for storage, sorry, the amount of storage that you need goes up. And so you have this problem of decentralization. And Bitcoin was very concerned with, hey, we really want to have a very strongly decentralized network. And we want everyone to be able to run the Bitcoin software in their house. And that means that we need to make sure that uh, the software that you're running doesn't get too big. And it, it got, you know, it's terabytes uh, and on some blockchains. And it's, it's looking like it's going to get even larger. So that was, there's a lot of discussion around the right way to scale blockchains, but pretty much everyone came to the conclusion that just continuing to increase the size of the blocks over time is not a great solution because it's just going to become prohibitively expensive for people to run uh, these nodes themselves. So that was one, like the very easy way that we can solve the problem of congestion uh, and making blockchains faster is just make the amount of storage that we can put on a blockchain larger. So that was the first attempt. Uh, and then people said, well, maybe we can do a little bit better than that. Uh, and they're like, how about if in, we can aggregate some transactions together. Uh, and the first way that people try to do that was with a technology called state channels. And just to make it super simple, it's kind of like if I have a transaction for you, like you and I want to do a transaction, let's say that we do tra like three or four or five or 10 or a hundred transactions per month. Uh, instead of publishing all 100 of those transactions, we could just wait to the end of the month and then publish one transaction, right? And and so like a lot of people got excited about using this because that means that if you have if you could just track around a bunch of relationships between everybody using software and know who was going to be transacting with someone else uh, frequently, you could reduce the number of transactions that everyone does. Everyone could maybe just publish one transaction in a month, and that would be enough to handle uh, all of their different uh, transactions. So that was another very early technology, and those are two ways that people were approaching the problem. And then since then. We've opened up five, six, seven other, you know, a half a dozen other uh, ways that we can potentially scale blockchains. And they're all extremely, like, actively debated. Everyone has a very strong opinion about these. So I'm going to try to be careful because I don't want to offend anybody out there. I actually think all of these scaling solutions are useful in one, in one uh, way or another. But those are, those are some of the earliest ones that we saw. Okay, and so those solutions that you just said, are those L1 solution, solutions or L2 solutions? Yeah, so the first one that I talked about where you just make the block size bigger, that's a layer one solution, which is known as an L1 solution. Uh, and it's they use that notation because it makes it easier when you're talking about designing a blockchain because um, to say layer one versus layer two. So that first one where you just make the block size bigger, okay, that's great. Uh, that's on the original Bitcoin blockchain. That's on L1 type solution. That means it's, the blockchain is faster for everybody who's interacting with it. And then the uh, another example of an L1 solution would be to make the block times happen faster. <laughs> so you, everyone knows the Bitcoin blockchain. Uh, every 10 minutes is when it publishes a block. So what if we just publish a block every five minutes, right? And then that could potentially increase the throughput of the Bitcoin blockchain by two, right? Because you have twice as many going through. Then that's another solution that a lot of people suggested for a layer one solution. And what's funny is, is in the early days of Bitcoin, there was a lot of debate around both of these topics. Like, hey, can we make the Bitcoin blockchain just uh, store more information? And that would be 
uh, a layer one solution for increasing capacity. And then another one was like, hey, can we just make the Bitcoin uh, blockchain do block times faster? And these two simple questions led to like a whole bunch of innovation on what could we potentially do to make uh, make it better and to save a lot of discussion. The reason why they uh, a lot of people in the Bitcoin space have said, no, we can't just continue to increase the number of transactions we allow through is because uh, the size of the computer you would need to run the Bitcoin network would just get too big for most users. And so it wouldn't be as decentralized. And then for the other one on block time is like, hey, can't, why can't we just do a Bitcoin block every two seconds? Right. Like that would be great. And the problem there is you need to have a confirmation period that's lo that's long enough for everyone to feel confident about the validity uh, of the block. So we actually saw a lot of blockchains that had like, oh, we have, you know, 10 second block times or whatever. But uh, then they would just say, oh, we want to now you have to wait instead of waiting one block or two blocks to feel good about it. You need to wait 100 blocks because for security reasons, you want to have more time to know that it's good. So both of these solutions for L1 for, for just scaling on the on the blockchain at the base layer uh, were kind of uh, seen to be limiting, right? And there's all sorts of arguments. Like, you, yes, you can definitely increase the blockchain size a little bit for Bitcoin. Uh, there's a there's another version of Bitcoin, like Bitcoin Cash, and the block size is eight times bigger. So it's definitely theoretically possible to make it work that way. Uh, and then you can also speed up the block times because there's lots of different chains that have faster blockchain times than Bitcoin, like Litecoin, for instance. But the problem is, is it doesn't seem like it's going to scale enough for global scale, right? All of these little solutions are like, oh, we can have 2x as many users. So, but Bitcoin users is really tiny, especially back then. And like, oh, you can handle a million people. And that's not really the same as handling uh, 3 billion. You need like 3,000, 10,000, 100,000 times faster, especially if everyone wants to do everyday transactions. So those are the early L1 solutions. And then I'll pause here and make sure that made sense. And then we can talk a little bit about the different ideas on L2. Yeah. Well, why don't we, I guess like the only thing that would be helpful for me is to give some real life examples of, um, of how users can face these limitations today. So like, I'll just throw one out, uh, first is the other day I tried to buy a crypto kitty. I, I know I'm like four years late to the game, but finally try to get into crypto kitties, try to buy a crypto kitty for like eight, it was like eight US dollars, the equivalent of eight US dollars. And then I went to go purchase it. And it said the gas price was like 4,000 US dollars. So it basically was asking me to pay like 4,000 US dollars to buy a crypto kitty that was supposed to cost me $8 that I was just playing around for fun. So that, you know, obviously it didn't go through with that. But can you just explain the back end problems that were causing this to happen to me? Uh, yes. So what you're talking about specifically is now we're moving forward. So I was just talking about blockchain back in 2011. Right. And so now you're moving forward to 2021. You're like, Matt, why is it going to cost me a thousand dollars to get my crypto kitty? And the truth is, we have a lot more users now than with a lot more applications than we did back in 2012 and 2013. And they have just push the prices of interacting on chain because they want to people pay more to get their information stored on chain now because uh, there's more people that want it. So they're competing with each other and they have pushed these prices to just absolutely obscene levels in the past uh, six months, I would say, especially since DeFi, because everyone's using these DeFi uh, trading apps and the technologists working on scaling blockchains 
simply have not been able to keep up. They haven't been able to increase the throughput of the blockchain as fast as the user growth for wanting to use these blockchains has gone up. And Ethereum is actually an interesting case because remember, I was just talking about layer one solutions where you can increase how much information you can store. And so Ethereum has actually increased its block size at least two times, if, if not three in the past couple of years, where they just kept adding like another 30% or 20% to the block size. And then every time it just got filled up. And again, it's that whole thing where, oh, you can increase the amount of transactions that can go through, but what if more users come on, you're eventually going to hit that limit again. And so I would actually say the reason why you're suffering these gas prices today and everyone who's listening is because the technology is working really hard to try to catch up with demand. And so then now there's a lot of incentive to solve this problem, which is great because now entrepreneurs are coming in and working on scaling solutions to try to bring these transactions down. And I would say that the majority of the effort now for bringing gas costs down uh, are using different ways of compressing the amount of information that you have to store on the main blockchain, on the L1, uh, So, but still allowing people to verify the uh, contents of those transactions uh, on, on their own. So the idea is you want the transactions on the main chain to be as small as possible uh, so they don't contain any extraneous information while uh, at the same time increasing the uh, total amount of information that can be stored in those tiny transactions so that people can verify it on their own, like building systems for them to verify it. Off. And, th and those are all the layer two solutions. And so the distinction here between layer one, layer one is something that's happening on the blockchain protocol le level. And then layer two is some system that you build on top of the blockchain for uh, tracking ownership data about uh, blockchain assets and then pushing that information, like a small piece of that information onto the blockchain itself that people can use to verify whether or not uh, that's that's true. And so that's pretty complex, but let's talk about your crypto kitty for a second. You can actually, there. I believe there are some layer twos out there already that support crypto kitties. And what you can do is deposit your crypto kitty onto a layer two. And then any action you do in that layer two, you can trade around that crypto kitty a hundred times and breed it or whatever else. And then at the later date, when you want to move it back to the layer one, you just push one transaction. Instead of pushing all the 100 transactions you did over the three month period, there's just one that comes out. Now that works even better for something like uh, a stable coin. So there are stable coins looking at moving to L2s. Also uh, DEXs for trading are looking at, at to move to L2s because you can imagine everyone takes their money and then they all deposit it into this exchange on, on chain, on the blockchain. And then they can trade with each other and there's, you know, everyone's going to be switching around their balances. And then when you want to leave, you can just publish uh, your your balance at the end and then you leave the rest of it on chain. So if you if you lost money trading, then when you leave, you're going to have less than when you got on. And if you made money trading, when you leave, you're going to take more with you. Uh, but no one has to know any of those transfers in between. So the amount of information that you have to save is a lot less. And if you think about it, this sounds a lot like uh, state channels which I mentioned at the beginning of this, which was uh, the very first layer two solution that people proposed at the beginning, which is like, hey, Diana, if you and I are going to transact 100 times this month, how about instead of doing 100 Bitcoin transactions, we just do one transaction at the end of every month. Okay. And so a lot of these L2 solutions 
that's exactly what they're doing. Uh, but they're much more complex now because you can take uh, hundreds of transactions between like, let's say you know, thousands of people on Uniswap, for instance, and we can all do hundreds of transactions with each other. And then we aggregate all that data back and we just push it on chain. And the, the goal, the holy grail for all of these scaling solutions is to find something uh, that is a constant size. And so this is a computer science thing uh, that can prove an infinite number of, uh, uh, of updates. And you're like, what the hell does that mean? And that would mean like if we had a Bitcoin blockchain and we just say, hey, the block size is always going to be exactly this and we're only going to publish it every 10 minutes. But if we can figure out a way to compress the data so that um, you can read that block and you can prove 1,000 different uh, changes or 10,000 different changes or 100,000 or a million or 10 million, but it's all going to be the same size because this is just the summary information. Uh, that's the holy grail. And we're getting close. Uh, and there's all sorts of math around exactly how that works. But at a high level, uh, they're trying to figure out what everyone's working on is how do we just continue to compress and compress and compress the amount of data down into the absolute smallest possible size uh, so that and, and then hopefully we can compress the data down so small, in fact, that if you need to add an extra transaction and actually doesn't change this size at all. And in our example, if we did 100 transactions back and forth in a month, if we decided to do one more and we did 101, we still only need to publish one transaction to the main blockchain, even though we did an extra transaction in that interim step. So what I'm, I'm just trying to demonstrate it is possible because you can imagine us doing 200 transactions. And again, we just have to, to publish the net result of the month that we did there. Uh, and so that's the goal that the people are all trying to work towards. And that's a much better solution then the first solutions that were proposed for for uh, blockchains, which was, hey, let's just make the blockchain bigger and let's just make the uh, confirmation time faster. And those two solutions have proven again and again to be temporary because the demand for this stuff is just really high right now. So I'm sorry that your crypto kitty cost $1,000 uh, and I'm hoping that you didn't buy it. <laughs> I definitely did not, but I'm going to go search for an L2 solution now so I can buy it for a reasonable price. Um, so with the solutions that you're talking about with L2, are there any limitations to that? Or do you foresee that being the end all solution that's going to allow us to scale globally and there's no limit to how much we can scale with this solution? So I was actually doing the math on this the past couple of weeks and just trying to get a feel for kind of where we're at right now. So just to put some numbers on it, there's probably busy day on Ethereum. There's probably several hundred thousand active cryptocurrency users. And on those busy days on Ethereum, the prices get too high, like your CryptoKitty costs a thousand. So I'd actually say that that's not functional at that point. So, and that's only with 500,000 users. And if you're looking at the solutions that are out there for scaling, and just to be clear, there are lots of different scaling solutions that will function on the layer one and then also layer two. There's also uh, side chains. There's all sorts of different ways that people can use to scale. Uh, and we'll talk about all of these. But even if you, if, you, if, you, if you combine all of those together right now, none of them are looking like enough to get us to global scale because uh, the, the, one, the best ones out there, like we just talked about, 
where we could aggregate like a hundred transactions and turn it into one or something. The problem is, is it becomes very difficult to aggregate groups of people's transactions in a way that makes sense. And you're going to have some uh, differences between different types of transactions and people are going to be using them. So there's going to be like, there's going to be more than one solution for scaling. And then all of those solutions are going to need to publish a little bit of information to the blockchain. So I would say it's a little bit undetermined at this point, exactly how it's all going to work out over the next, you know, you know, in the very long run. Now I can speak much more confidently about the medium term and on in the medium term, I think it's very likely we'll see uh, 100 to 1000 X improvements. So if we take the numbers, I'm saying on a hot day right now, on like a very busy day on Ethereum, you could expect 500,000 users. I think it's possible that uh, in this next wave of innovation that's happening right now, it's act actively happening this year and next year, we'll be able to increase the throughput for these open blockchain systems by two orders of magnitude. So that means instead of like maxing out at about 500,000 users, like active users of the blockchain, I think we're going to max out around 50 million uh, with current technology. And I've got a spreadsheet where I've, you know, actually like running these numbers and, you know, somewhere right around 30 million uh, daily active users of any one of these L1 blockchains, you know, any of them, uh, the, the uh, smart contract ones at least, is, is kind of where the uh, technology limit is at this point in time. Now, I'm very optimistic <laughs> past that. Like, it's very, like, definitely we can get there. So we can get 100x better than we are today. And if you think about it, 30 million is uh, halfway there in a log scale to global, right? Because we get another 100x improvement from 30 million and we get to 3 billion. That's how many Facebook users there are. So that's like how many daily active internet users there are. So next one to three years, the technology will be here so that we can 100x the number of people participating in these things at reasonable prices. So your crypto kitty will cost, you know, five cents again, right? Uh, and then over, so that's the next two years. And I'm feeling really good about that. And then next two, one to three, right? Uh, and then past that, the types of improvements that we're going to need to see are going to be uh, some algorithm improvements on the proof systems for the the L1, like the, the core blockchains, like Bitcoin and, and Ethereum, um, specifically Ethereum. And uh, there'll be some optimizations around uh, some of these L2s. And I think there's going to be some innovation in being able to uh, process the proofs a little bit, uh, sorry, process things faster. So uh, it'll be a combination of tools uh, that it's going to take to make it happen. And we can continue to discuss that over the next couple of episodes. So I don't want to go too deep here off the deep end, but I think that was a pretty good high level. Yeah, I think that was great. We don't want to give away all the juice. We want to save it for future episodes. There's a lot more to talk about with the solutions that are being built out. Um, but overall, this is really exciting stuff and really positive, too, to hear that solutions are being built and that they're being built you know, right now and that we're going to see visible changes in the near future. So th this has been great, Matt. Thanks for this overview. Thanks everybody for tuning in. And we will be back again soon with another episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. If something I said today resonated with you, please rate, subscribe, download the podcast, 
and share this episode on social media with your network. This helps other people find us. And remember, the fun doesn't have to stop when the episode ends. We can continue the conversation on Twitter by tweeting your questions, thoughts, or ideas to me at Matthew E. Gould. We look forward to chatting with you. And thanks again for listening.